I will be reading from Job 42, 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Job, where it will be this morning. It's in the middle of your Bible. And feel free to pull the sermon outline out as well to help you follow along. Well, it was fun to hear Chuck's story, wasn't it, about how the year of the Bible has meant so much to him. And to hear how um, God's Word is alive and active in his life and in so many of our lives. Um, and I wonder uh, if one of the things he said, straight out to you two, of, you know, before this, I tended to just sort of pick out different passages that I thought I knew or that I liked and read those. But reading through the Bible has sort of caused me to look at a lot of parts of the Bible I wouldn't look at otherwise. And that's one of the values of reading systemically in some way through the Bible, is all our hearts are sort of prone to just go to the things we like and ignore the things we don't like. But if we want to really know the God who is there, the God of Scripture, we look at all of who he is. I wonder, uh, we're, we're coming to the book of Job today, I wonder how many of you would say you like the book of Job? As I've been preparing this sermon this week, I've talked to some people who say, this is my favorite book of the Bible. And I've talked to other people who said, I don't get Job. <laughs> like I, I don't like Job, it makes me uncomfortable. And uh, wherever you're at in that, or maybe you've never heard of the book of Job before, um, wherever you are in that journey, I hope that as we look at God's word together, that we hear from him, God who's, who's really there. Personally, I'm more in the latter category. I find Job kind of a discomforting book. Uh, the wildness of God, um, the goodness of God, but also the wildness of God, uh, for me is a, a, a less enjoyable passage than reading the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son or something. Um, but I was talking to my wife about this this week as I was preparing for it, and she finds this such a helpful book in her life. And hearing her uh, courage over it helps me to be excited about reading it with you this morning. Well, what we're going to do in our passage today, because Pastor Tim talked about the first part of Job last week, We'll just briefly uh, cover the opening of it, in case you weren't here or, or, or don't remember what he said, which I'm sure is not the case, because all of us remember the sermons verbatim <laughs> all the time. But then we'll turn to how Job's wife and his friends uh, respond to Job's suffering, and what we can learn about sort of the human propensity of the heart and how we might respond to suffering. Then we'll look at how God responds to Job's suffering and Job's uh, demanding an audience with him. And lastly, we'll look at how Job's journey points us to Jesus uh, and how we as Christians can understand Job's story in light of the gospel. Well, let's talk about uh, the first part of the book of Job. Again, Pastor Tim covered this in more detail last week. If you missed that, you're welcome to download the Grace app and uh, you can hear his sermon in its entirety there. The first couple chapters of Job are a um, heavenly display of what's going on in the earthly world. Uh, God commends Job, which is a remarkable thing that would, I hope, be the, the cry of all our hearts that we would honor God in such a way. He says, look at Job, look at how amazingly righteous he is. He loves me, 
Uh, he worships me, he serves me, and Satan says, no, nah, he doesn't care about you. He just cares about what he can get from you. He doesn't care about the giver, just the gifts. If you take away the gifts, he'll curse you to your face. And God allows Satan to do that, uh, and the process continues over a tremendous amount of suffering in Job's life. And at the end of that, Job has this remarkable confession of faith in Job 2.10, where he says, shall we receive good from God and not evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job passes a test that faces all of us in the Christian life, which is when suffering comes, do we care about God or do we just care about the things that come from God? If God brings pain rather than pleasure in our lives, will we abandon him? Or even if he just withholds blessing, forget about pain, if he just withholds a ex spiritual experience of him, if he withholds blessing we can see in our life, will we still walk with him and follow him? Or is the only reason that Job cares about God, the only reason that we care about God, the things that we get from God? Do we want God for God's sake or God for his gift's sake? And Job passes this test, right? He does the right thing. He stays connected to the God even in the midst of tremendous suffering. He refuses to curse God. He refuses to abandon God. And he is mad at God. It's wrong to say that Job endures his suffering lying down. He cries out to God. He laments to God. He curses the day of his birth, but he never curses God himself. He begs God to tell him why he's suffering so much. Job is not a stoic, and Job certainly is not living in a pretend world. He calls out to God over and over, like in Job 3, where he says, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job demands an explanation for why he suffers. He's convinced he's innocent, that he doesn't deserve this, and God should vindicate him. But this presents a huge tension throughout the second part of the book, because no one believes him. All his friends around him, his wife in his home, they all see his suffering as the final verdict on who he is as a person. Much like the inmate in prison who insists they're innocent, it falls on deaf ears, right? You wouldn't be in this place if you weren't guilty, uh, the assumption is. And so they treat his suffering as if it must be the final word in his life. Job's, wife theory, Job's wife's theory is that he's suffering because God doesn't care. Maybe he's innocent, but it doesn't matter. He should just curse God and die. You're suffering, she essentially tells her husband, because God is either impotent or ignorant. And God doesn't care about you, so you shouldn't care about him either. She, she says in, in her one line in the book, in Job 2.9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. As Tim helpfully pointed out last week, She's going through her own journey. She's lost a lot as well. So we don't want to be too harsh with her. But we do want to highlight that this is a response that a lot in our world have to suffering. Her theory is that suffering is a sign of chaos, that there's no meaning here. And if the pain gets bad, just change course. We hear it in our culture in the form of, religion is fine if it helps you, but if it's not helping, you should just drop it. That's what the world tells us often. If your faith helps you to make sense of the world, that's great. Feel free to use it. But be a pragmatist about it. If it becomes too much of a burden, just let it go. Do something else instead. Don't mistake uh, his wife's very brief comments here to suggest that this is an uncommon view. It's not. It's, it's one that we'll see and you'll run into all the time. We see people leave the faith or abandon their 
discipleship to Jesus? Because things get difficult in their life, and they essentially do what Job's wife commends. They curse God and leave. And and I want to make a distinction here between what Job's wife tells Job to do and what Job actually does. He tells her, curse God. What Job does is he's angry with God, and those are different. Because you might read the rest of Job and say, doesn't he essentially do what Job's wife's telling him to do? Like she says, curse God, and he says, I curse the day of my birth. She says, curse God, and he says, God, where are you? But these are, these are distinct, and the distinction needs to be maintained. Like Job has nothing to be ashamed of for his anger. He has nothing to be ashamed of for his grief, and he has nothing to be ashamed of for his loss. Right? There is nothing that he's guilty of in this book for crying out to God and saying, God, vindicate me. Well, the other major view that dominates the book of Job is Job's three friends. They come to him with a desire to vindicate God. They think they have a better theology um, than Job's wife does. His wife has a view of suffering as a sign of chaos, but his friends say, no, it's not chaos. God's totally in control. But they have a very two-dimensional view of what God's control could look like. And I say it's two-dimensional because there's only one outcome they see as possible. If you're suffering, it's your fault. That's their two-dimensional view. If you're suffering, it's a sign of God's curse in your life. If you're suffering, it's your fault. The first of his friends, a man named Eliphaz, he has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, which I think are good names for cats, if any of you guys want to name your cats. Um, In Job 4, 7, Eliphaz says, Remember who that was innocent was ever perished, or where was the upright ever cut off? Essentially, he's saying righteous people don't suffer, Job. People who are blessed aren't cursed. If you're suffering, you have to be in sin, and you need to repent of it. And you know, when we read parts of the Old Testament, we suspect, well, I don't know, maybe he has a case, right? Deuteronomy 28 and 29 says that when God renews his covenant with Israel, he says if they obey him, they'll be blessed, and if they disobey him, they'll be cursed. We read a lot of stories in the Old Testament where it seems like blessing is a sign of God's care for the righteous, and that cursing is a desire for them to repent. Maybe Job does have something to repent of. Well, the problem with this view is we've read chapters 1 and 2, and we know that's not what's going on with Job. And also, the other problem is that just because something's generally true doesn't mean it's always true. We talked about this a few weeks ago with Hezekiah. Hezekiah does everything right, and yet the Assyrians invade. You guys know this, right? Just because something's generally true doesn't mean it's always true. Is uh, driving sober or driving drunk the safer option? Driving sober, right? except when it isn't. We all know people who have been sober who have gotten in a car accident, and people who have driven drunk and gotten home just fine sometimes. Just because it's generally true that it's safer to drive sober than drive drunk, it doesn't mean that in every case that will be the safer option. We see people throughout uh, the Old Testament who suffer in spite of being righteous. David spends 30 years after his anointing as the next king of Israel, running from Saul and hiding in caves, even though he's done nothing wrong. Joseph, spends years in slavery and in prison, not because of something he's done, but because of the persecution of others. We'll, in the next part of the Old Testament, get into the prophets. And the prophets' uh, reward for speaking what is true is often the exploitation and the persecution of people who don't like what they have to say. Suffering isn't a sign of persecution. Suffering is not a sign of uh, having done something wrong in all cases. 
And Job says, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm suffering not because of my sin, but because of some reason I don't even know. And as the reader, we have information that even Job doesn't have. I wonder what it would have been like for Job's friends to have believed him. Sort of the, you know, the alternative history of Job. Like, what if his friends come and they're quiet and they listen and they're patient and they say, Job, you've been a good man for as long as we've known you. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. Can we come alongside you and listen to what you have to say? But, but of course, they don't do that, right? They're uncomfortable with Job's pain. They're uncomfortable with his suffering. Maybe they're afraid. If the most righteous person in, that we know can have this happen to him, maybe it can happen to us as well. And so they quickly respond with victim blaming, the same sort of thing that we respond with often. They label someone else's pain and someone else's suffering in order to avoid the uncomfortable feelings that it could happen to them as well. We do the same thing with victims of sexual assault or with the homeless or the poor around the world. We assign negative characteristics to them in order to avoid the uncomfortable truth that sometimes suffering happens to people who don't seem to deserve it. But Job responds to his friend Eliphaz that he doesn't have anything to confess. You know, it'd be easier if he did. He knows how confession works, but, but there's nothing he's done wrong. Well, with Eliphaz not getting through, his other friend Bildad jumps in and says, everyone suffers for their sin, Job. Maybe you didn't do something wrong. Maybe it was your kid's fault. This falls in the category of the least helpful advice you can have. <laughs> in Job 8, 4, it says, if your children sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. How wonderfully comforting. <laughs> Oh, Bildad. Even for a cat, that's a rough name. All right. Now, it's, it's not that Job has an unrealistic view of his kid's holiness, right? You go back to chapter one, Job has offered sacrifices continually out of the fear that maybe his kids have cursed God in their heart. So it's not that Job doesn't think that his kids could have done something wrong, but Bildad's theory doesn't add up. Like, why would Job be suffering, right? If God is so karmic, if God just punishes people who do something wrong and rewards people who do something good in a automatic way in a predictable fashion like this, why is Job in pain? Even if it did explain his kids, which it doesn't, why would he be the one suffering? So the third friend, Zophar, jumps in in chapter 11. And Zophar doesn't really have anything new to say except to be sure that he's right. Uh, he would have done well in our modern social media era. He says in Job 11:6, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So far, Bildad and Eliphaz all have this intractable theory. Job, if you're suffering, it's your fault. And the assumption behind it is, if you're doing well, then you get the credit as well. And Job is left alone with this problem. How do I relate to God when I know I haven't done something to deserve the pain in my life? Now, let me just be clear. His friends are wrong. Right? That, that's not what God is like. God does not just mete out punishment for our sins in such a direct and concrete way that they expect. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including Job. But in this case, there's nothing that's provoked this suffering. There's nothing he's being disciplined for. In fact, there's something going on far beyond his comprehension. But all of his three friends only see in two dimensions. They say, your suffering shows your sin, and you need to repent of it. Now, I wish I could say, what a ridiculous archaic belief that no one holds in the world today. But this is one of the chief problems that we're facing theologically in our world now. It's often called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. 
the belief that, as Job's friends believe here, if something bad is in your life, it's your fault. And if you're lacking something good, it's your lack of faith or your lack of holiness. If you go to Barnes & Noble down the street and pick up a book in the Christianity section, especially if it's a book with someone's picture on the cover, it'll probably be teaching some form of this prosperity gospel. Right? If you're lacking fullness or lacking blessing or lacking fruit or whatever metaphor they want to use, it's because you don't have enough faith. And 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it took the form of uh, put your hand on the TV and send in money to, our, to the, to the uh, address on the station and you'll be healed. Today it takes maybe a more insidious or more softer form where it's buy our book, come to our conferences, and name and claim God's blessing on your life. But they undergirds the same theology. The idea that our pain is our fault and our blessing is our credit. It's exactly what Job's counselors say and it's what God directly rebukes at the end of this book. And sadly, it's the main form of mission that American Christianity has exported to the world, especially the global south. Um, much of the expansion of Christianity, I'm sad to say, in places like Brazil and in Southern Africa is a result of this prosperity gospel. It's incredibly popular because it matches our core religious experience as humanity, right? We expect that if we do God thing, good things, we'll be rewarded for them. And if we do bad things, we'll be punished for them. So when we read the biblical account of Jesus, the perfect righteous one who nevertheless was punished for our sins so that we would not be rewarded for what we've done, but that we would be accepted into his family because of what he's done, it makes the prosperity gospel make no sense at all. Job, as a pointer to what Jesus is like, is the righteous one who insists that he doesn't deserve this either. He pleads for God to intervene, to listen to him, to take up his case like a judge in a court. And in his lament before God, he is faithful. Even though he's wildly discouraged, even suicidal at times, he has nothing to be ashamed of. He is despairing, he's angry, and he's full of faith. Those things don't often seem like categories that fit in with us, but in Job, we see hope for all of us who are in pain and in suffering, who sometimes feel like we're forced to pretend to be happy when we're not, who feel like sometimes we're forced to pretend to have it all together when we don't. In Job, we see a hero of someone who, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his hurt, in the midst of his anger, clung to God rather than cursed him or turned away from him. I wonder about you when you suffer, um, and, and all of us go through suffering at different points in our life. Um, I have become acutely aware of how little suffering it takes for my character to seem to crumble. Um, this week, uh, this is a very small example, but it's just a sign of, of how fragile my character can be. Uh, our one-year-old decided that 2 a.m. is the perfect time to vomit, and he liked it so much one night he would do it again a couple days later. And, you know, I'd like to say I jumped up with joy and said, sweetie, you stay in bed. I'm going to take care of this as a servant in my family. And, oh, little guy, I'm so sorry you're not feeling well. Please vomit in my face, um, <laughs> which he did. <laughs> but even the smallest amounts of suffering, right, provoke grumpiness, provoke frustration, provoke sullenness. I wonder how your experience of suffering and the small things now are going to prepare you for suffering and bigger things later in life. How you're laying a path of how you experience suffering in uh, your early years will be preparing your soul for how you're going to prepare, how to respond to suffering in our later years. For Job, he suffers in a faithful way before God. 
The last of his friends, a young man named Elihu, who interestingly is not rebuked by God at the end of the book, uh, responds to Job and says, Job, maybe you're right. Maybe there's nothing uh, that you're suffering for now, but suffering disciplines us. It prepares us and it teaches us to avoid sin in the future. And so you should take advantage of this suffering now so that you don't sin in what's to come. After all, we can't expect God to just come down and respond to us every time we cry out to him. This is his conclusion at the end of chapter 37. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Essentially, Elihu is saying to Job, Job, you can call out to God all you want. God's not showing up. Well, I don't know how Elihu would have finished his speech because God shows up. God does reveal himself. Job has insisted that God would speak to him, and Job's friends have insisted that's never going to happen. And yet in chapter 38, God speaks to Job. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And at that point, Job's complaints fall weak and his words fail him. As he says in chapter 41, after hearing from God, he covers his mouth. Because God responds to Job with a display of his authority and power that awes and humbles Job. For four chapters, from chapter 38 to 41, God lays out an amazing display of his authority over creation and challenges Job, saying, Job, look at all the ways that I run the world that you don't understand. If you read through it, I'm sure that someone will stand out to you. It kind of reads like a, an ancient version of watching Planet Earth on Netflix. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He says in verse four. Tell me if you have understanding. Later on in the chapter, he says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Talking about constellations of stars. Then if you jump down to chapter 39, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? By the end of this display, Job has nothing left to say, nothing left to respond. He says, God, you're the one who's in control, not me. Now, here's the question. Why is this helpful to Job? I mean, I know it awes him. He's quiet at the end of it. He has no more objections. But why is this the way that God responds to Job? I mean, after all, why doesn't he just tell him what's happening in chapters 1 and 2? Job still doesn't know about the whole thing with Satan and the, the cosmic test. Why doesn't God just tell him what we know? from reading the book. Why doesn't God just say, I'm sorry, Job, but I needed to prove that there was someone who worshiped me for pure reasons, not just for what they could gain from me. I know this has been an incredibly painful test in your life. I know it's been really difficult, but take heart, you know, billions of people are going to find this story encouraging for thousands of years to come. Your loss is going to have been worth it, and you've passed the test, right? When lots of other people would have failed, you've passed. You've been faithful. You've been the right one, all the Oompa Loompas are going to serve you now, and you can have the chocolate factory, right? You, it's all yours, Willy Wonka. Um, believe it or not, that's actually more of a laugh than I got at 8 o'clock for that joke. <laughs> so why does God do this? Uh, best reasons I can come up with. Because um, the passage doesn't say. So this is just conjecture. You know, all of us would benefit from more humility in the face of our suffering. Right? We may not be in sin. We may, may not be wrong. We may be just and calling out and lament for God to respond. But lament needs to be tempered by humility. Understanding like Job does that we are small and God is great. 
and that there's often more going on in our suffering than we could ever know, a more going on in what God is carrying out than we can understand. And, and the other reason that I think is really important is because what changes in Job is his knowledge of God as a person. It's not that his situation changes. It's not that his setting changes. It's not that the, the consequences for unjust suffering change. But what changes is that God knows Job, that Job knows God personally, not just an intellectual answer to his question. As he says in uh, chapter 42, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Knowing God, knowing the person of God, changes Job's perspective on suffering. The same thing's true for us. We may not know the reason we're experiencing pain. It may not be our fault. We may not ever have an answer to the side of eternity, but we have trust in the person of God, and we know what his character is like. Job is vindicated by God. Job's audience with God deeply humbles him, and he repents at the end of it in verse 6. Look at chapter 42, verse 6. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. This is what Job's been avoiding all of the book. And he said he doesn't have any reason to do. So why is he repenting now? Well, he's not repenting of sin, but he's repenting of his lack of humility before God. Not of something that he didn't do, but rather of his posture before the Almighty. And interestingly, God vindicates him now. He tell, God tells Job's friends, that they're the ones who've misrepresented him, not Job. And it's only through Job's prayers that they're healed. And ultimately, Job's restored. It says in verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, of course, this will never make up for the loss of his kids. This will never make up for the pain he experienced. But it does show that Job's been vindicated by God to anyone who would see. That God is... Uh, brought into Job's life an expression of, um, of honor that he can point to that'll help everyone see that it wasn't his fault. So what do we take away from Job as a book? What do you take away from it? Uh, I hope that you see in Job a model for how we can all respond to suffering. Someone who, in his uh, desire to cling to God, is willing to bring all of who he is and cry out to God and say, God, I... I want to be close to you, even if I'm so angry at you. And I hope that you also take away from Job an, ex- an experience and a hope in the holiness and goodness of God, that even when our suffering doesn't make sense, that there is a reason that God is carrying out beyond what we can understand. But the thing I hope you take away most from Job is how Job points us to Jesus. You know, Job is the righteous person who suffers not for what he's done wrong, but to carry forth the mission of God. But Jesus, of course, is the better Job, the one who never did anything to deserve what happens to him on the cross, and yet suffers for our sin. Job says that he needs an advocate before God, someone who would plead his case, an advocate before God who was God himself, who could make a case before God that he would be saved. Jesus is the better Job, the one who can advocate before God himself. Job is the one who says that he will trust in the hands of God, As he says in chapter 13, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job's the one who trusts God even when it seems like everything has gone wrong. But Jesus is the better Job, the one who in the Garden of Gethsemane says, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He's the one who at the cross says, into your hands I commit my spirit. As the better Job, he trusts God even to the end. Job is the one who out of tremendous pain is vindicated 
and is brought into a place of wholeness. But Jesus is the better Job, who is brought forth out of the grave and into life everlasting. And in the midst of that vindication, Job is the advocate who intercedes for his friends so that they would be healed. The one who was thought to be a cursed person who is now a blessing for others. And yet, of course, Jesus is the better Job, the one who intercedes for us at the right hand of God. Job is the one who's humbled by God's challenge about the creation and the upholding of the world. He's the one who says, how could I ever understand all the things that you have made? And yet Jesus is the better Job, the one who, according to John 1, has made everything that has been made, who, according to Colossians 1.17, upholds the whole world by his word and by his hand. And maybe my favorite connection between Job and Jesus. Job is the one, according, um, Jesus is the one who, according to John 39, let me try this again. Job 39, God challenges Job, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? It's a challenge to Job. Job, of course, the animals won't serve you. Of course, they won't spend the night at your manger. And yet Jesus, on the night he was born, even as a baby, has animals standing by his manger. Jesus is the better Job, the one who is completely righteous and yet suffers for our account. And so we call him blessed. We don't call him cursed. We don't say he suffered for nothing, but we see God's hand and what he's done. And as a result of that, we can have hope that even in the midst of our suffering, there can be something good that comes as a result of it as well. A couple questions for you to pray about this week. What do you admire about Job? What do you like about him? And maybe as you look at his weaknesses, where do you see yourself? Secondly, when you think about times that you've gone through suffering, and that can be, you know, lowercase s or capital S, depending on what your life circumstances have been like, where do you see similarities to Job, and where do you see some differences that you'd like to change in the future? And then, you know, God's prescription for Job in the midst of suffering is to reflect on his grandeur, on his majesty. How does the majesty of God help us in the midst of our suffering? Now let's close our time in prayer. God, thank you for Job and his faithfulness to you. Um, I can't imagine the losses he goes through and still staying connected to you. I confess that it takes so much less than that for me to grumble and complain and be sullen. God, would you give me a humble sympathy when I'm in the role of Job's friends, when I see people who are suffering. God, help me not to be judgmental or overly simplistic, but to be patient knowing that you may be carrying out something holy in their suffering. God, we're so thankful for Jesus, uh, the truly righteous one who suffered so unjustly. Thank you that he intercedes for us as his friends and that we are healed before you as a result. It's in his name we pray. Amen.